have the pilot not listen. So in other words, eliminate, they've got the ability to listen to those, to those radio frequencies if they want to, but we encourage them not to and to just concentrate on the business of flying. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 94. Welcome back. Electronic news gathering, or ENG, is the term that those in the helicopter news corner of the industry seem to have come up for themselves, at least particularly in the US. Us as consumers of news media are pretty used to now streamed live aerial video these days. If it's not video, then any part of living in a sizable city in the modern era is the experience of a radio station traffic report from an overhead helicopter. For news stations, it probably doesn't hurt for them to have a flying billboard decked out in their station colours and logo flying overhead as well. When it comes to big cities and news helicopters, Los Angeles in the US is probably some of the the most recognisable operations, in part because of the the co-location with Hollywood and the productions that come out of there. There are upwards of 12 million people in the greater LA area, and it's the second largest city in the US after New York. I couldn't find a a recently quoted figure, but there's something crazy like 8 million vehicles registered in the city. You can imagine the popularity of the morning and afternoon traffic helicopter updates uh, in terms of, of how the highways are looking. For the last 29 years, Larry Welk has been involved in news coverage above LA. Larry Welk is president of Welk Aviation based in California, which is a number of subsidiary helicopter operations. I was introduced to Larry by show listener Tom McGill, who reached out and suggested Larry as a guest. Tom is a cinematographer who got his own helicopter license in the early 2000s and has worked with Larry at times as an aerial camera operator. Thanks very much, Tom, for the recommendation. Some snippets from Larry's bio, he has over 17,000 flight hours. He served two years as president of the Professional Helicopter Pilot Association, which has just been renamed to the Southern Californian Rotorcraft Association. Larry has received two Emmy nominations, one Emmy Award, a National Sports Emmy Award, two commendations from the City of Los Angeles, recognition from the National Broadcast Pilots Association and the Greater Los Angeles Press Club. Larry takes us through a range of topics today related to electronic news gathering. We chat about the early days of news flying before video downlinks, building flight time, the normal daily routine for traffic patrols and the news aircrew, the transition from the pilot being the on-air talent uh, to a team and a crew effort, bit of an introduction to the LA airspace, some of the training process to become a news pilot, safety considerations flying over the urban environment, and the importance of learning everything to do with the mission or the role that the helicopter is being used for, and not just to focus on the, the helicopter control and getting an A to B. Larry has a, a raft of different helicopter operations that he has a hand in, and I asked Larry to give us a quick overview of his role at the company. 
My name is Larry Welk, W-E-L-K. I own a company in Los Angeles that primarily started uh, with uh, the helicopter's use of, of its abilities to move around such a large area in Los Angeles uh, back in the early 90s for television news. So one part of my company currently has four news contracts in the United States, three of them here in Los Angeles, one in Boston. We also do television production and uh, motion picture uh, production for uh, either a story helicopter, a helicopter that's in the actual production, or one that has cameras and we go out and provide aerial support for the production industry. I own another company here in LA that is called Summit Helicopter, and Summit's primary job is utility and power line support. So the videos and, and pictures that you see of helicopters flying up next to the wires, which is, we're all told not to do from day one of flight school, is uh, what we do. Uh, our, our specialty on that side is human external cargo, meaning we will take 50-foot lines and drop people into very inaccessible areas, sometimes directly on the power lines themselves. So between those things, um, we have right now, it, and it's a flexible fleet, but we've got about 16 helicopters in the fleet right now, all of them turbine. The majority of the news fleet is made up of H-125s or, or AS-350 A-Star helicopters, the Ecure, they used to call it. We've also got, an, for the power line division, we've got uh, several uh, MD-500s, and we also have a Sikorsky S-58T. Right. You've got a, a bit of a span of control in it. That's a that's a lot to keep control of. I've got a good I've got a good support staff. Um, our pilots are excellent. Our our uh, ground personnel are amazing. Got a, an excellent manager that is able to spin plates and uh, and juggle at the same time. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, let's talk about the, the early days. Were you basically creating a, a job for yourself in terms of you, you know you saw. Uh, a chance to, to get some flying hours and and went for it, or had you done you know had you done something else before you moved into the the news role? So my parents tell me that I've always been fascinated by things that fly. Um, as a matter of fact, when I was just a very young child, they got me a train set and I turned it into an airport and made the trains fly. And uh, my parents absolutely said, no, that's not the way things work. And flying is a hobby. It is not a, a profession. And as I got older, I started to realize that I knew that I was going to be involved in aviation. I thought I was going to possibly be an airline pilot. I enrolled in a university here in the United States that's an aeronautical university called Embry-Riddle University. And the idea was I was going to get a degree in aeronautical engineering and then go on to become an airline pilot. In the meantime, I took a job at one of the local airports here in uh, the greater Los Angeles area as a line service technician. So I was pumping fuel, washing aircraft, taking care of, you know, the lab service on private jets, that kind of thing. And it was through that that I met somebody that was really on the cutting edge and, and sort of doing some pioneering work when it came to news from a helicopter. And this is again in the early 90s where, where live transmission was starting to become a, a, a regular thing. We still didn't have any 
cameras. But long story longer is that that person fascinated me with the use of a helicopter to go cover breaking news uh, for the radio and television. And that person, talk about right place at the right time, happened to need an employee. They needed a photographer. And I had a little bit of photography experience in high school. I was very young at the time. I was 21 years old. I had just become a private uh, pilot working on my commercial helicopter. I was also a private airplane pilot at the time. And so I took the job uh, as the photographer from the backseat of a helicopter where we were using a handheld camera and we would fly to the scene of breaking news, whether it was, uh, we get brush fires out here, we get wildland fires that are, that, that are crazy. We also live in the entertainment capital of the world. So there were celebrity weddings and there were scandals that were going on. LA is a city of roughly 10 million people within our viewing area. And so to get around by helicopter was the way to do it. And so we started, we started going out and covering traffic accidents and things that are, were, were of, of interest here. We have earthquakes, of course, uh, rioting. So, um, and then the dawn of a new age was the OJ Simpson pursuit. Um, yeah, sure. that was a slow speed, a slow speed chase. Um, but anyway, so I, I, I got ahead of myself. I, I took the job sitting in the backseat of the helicopter where we had a handheld camera. We would fly to the scene of the story. And it was very sort of, uh, I, I, you know, I refer to it as, as sort of the Wild West out here because there was no coordination to speak of between law enforcement helicopters, fire helicopters, and news media. So whoever got there first sort of had the pole position. And of course, we were all handheld. So we wanted to be as low as possible so we could get the steadiest shot. So in the early days, I would say I was naive and didn't understand what the order was because we were going in there sort of, hey, we're here first, so we're going to get the story. And then, and then you can come in and do your job and put out the fire or rescue the person or, you know, set up a perimeter for the suspect or, or things like that. So it was a very... It was a very wild time back then. And as I became a commercial pilot and as I became more familiar with what was going on, I started to fly in a way that, that, that was more conducive to the safety of flight <laughs> versus, versus what a lot of people were doing, which was, I'm going to do my job and the flight will come second. Lara, I was going to ask, with that video then, did, were you streaming that or did you have to race back to base and then get the the videotapes off to the uh, television well, studios you know in the, in the early days and I'll, I'll tell you one story in particular it was a a, a rescue story it was a a, a a child that had been out snowboarding or skiing i believe and that child had been missing for several days the people thought that the child was dead we got a call and i i raced to the helicopter and what i didn't tell you was that i used to fly in the back seat while we were going to whatever we were covering, then I would put the camera down, hop up front in an order in order to build flight time of the uh, AS350B, the straight B model with the blue blades. And it was one of the first A-stars here in LA. But on this particular story, we, we wanted to get it on the air. We did not have live capability at the time for video. 
So we raced back to the TV station, hovered over the middle of Hollywood, which is where this TV station was. We didn't have anything to drop the tape with. I happened to be wearing running pants at the time. They were sweat short, sweatpants because we had been called out while I was getting ready to go for a run. I ended up using those pants to wrap the tape and drop it into the parking lot of the TV station uh, so that they could get it on the air for the, uh, for the afternoon newscast. So that's dedication. So, what was that cockpit conversation? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to picture the two of you yeah. in the conversation say, Hey, look, this, this is the plan I've got. What do you reckon? Luckily, I was wearing uh, appropriate undergarments and uh, was able to get away with uh, uh, landing the helicopter and running to my car right away so that I could go and get another pair of pants. But um, so that was that was one story in particular. But a lot of times we were experimenting with with live video. It just wasn't reliable. Some of the stations were getting it. Some of them weren't. And ultimately, we were able to transmit live. And that was a huge huge boom for 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 tv news because the viewing audience really hadn't seen a lot of live things that were happening in los angeles it was always sort of film at 11 or you know we'll show you what happened later on and so that that live being able to to show something live from the helicopter was 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 great uh but it wasn't really until the mid 90s when the gyro stabilized camera sort of revolutionized what we do as far as covering news is concerned and it and it, it was a transform transformational uh thing for us out here and and really all over the place um but especially in a city like LA where the weather's good most of the time the if, as far as flying you know we don't get we, we don't get terrible storms we don't get uh we do have a marine layer but that can be dealt with so it was the it was the advent of that of that camera that really sort of changed the way that we do business out here. In Australia, most of you know what I hear in live crosses and, and TV and things, we've pretty much separated the pilot from whoever's actually doing the. I guess you'd call them the, the talent. The little bits that I've heard about the the US market, especially in the early days, it was very personality based. So you know whoever was flying was the one who was doing the, the live cross, and I guess. There was news stations, the radio stations, or people would get to actually know the the pilot. So, is that the situation? Was there some really kind of early characters, and probably you as well? But is that you had a bit of a personality as as the pilot on air? Absolutely, I, I think that much like all of aviation back then, being the pilot or being the captain meant something more than it does today. Uh, and I and I don't mean that from the pilot and command standpoint of controlling the aircraft. I meant that there was sort of this sort of romantic notion of what a swashbuckling pilot or captain looked like or sounded like. And so in the early days, you know, you, you had Captain Ron or Captain Bob or, you know, Admiral whoever. Um, and it was uh, there was sort of a respect that was built into the fact that the pilot was the one that was bringing you the information. And I think over the years, and it was early, you know, we realized that, that, uh, that, that a pilot reporter may not have necessarily been the, the safest thing as technology moved on. And as there was more and more of demand, you know, back, back in the early days, there was not as much air traffic. There was not as much traffic traffic <laughs> there wasn't uh so you could really get away with going somewhere 
say, you know, a, a, a boat explosion in the, you know, a mile offshore, there was nobody else out there. You could go out and you could take a couple minutes and the station would say, now we're going to go to Captain Larry up in News Chopper 9. You know, Larry, what do you see? And, and we could tell them what we saw. And, and and we weren't being distracted by other aircraft or radios or things. And then slowly we started to get more and more of a demand. And we so from my company's perspective, while I did 14 years as a pilot reporter for CBS here in Los Angeles, I could see what direction that was taking. And so we started training people to report from the back position, which was the camera person's position and or adding a third person. So as a matter of fact, this week, we have one of our last pilot reporters that has been doing it for 16 years retiring this week. And we are going to give him a lot of fanfare and a, a, a very nice goodbye, but we will not replace that position as a pilot reporter. That position will now go to the backseat as a photographer reporter. Okay, yeah. Larry, can we talk about a, I don't know, hard to say an average news day, but I guess the differences between when you first started and now, do you put aircraft up waiting for things to happen? Is it turn up to work in the morning, your daily machine, and then you're sitting there waiting for a, for a launch? How did it work when you first started and what sort of setup do you guys run now? Well, the landscape has changed so much with technology. Back back in the early 90s, television and live broadcasting was was a unique thing and it was something that got the attention of the viewers. Now you've got Twitter and Facebook and all the social media platforms. And so I see television moving from the, the viewers on TV to how many clicks they get, how many views they get on the social media platforms. But um, having said that, a typical news day today in Los Angeles is that we have a crew that shows up right around 4 a.m. And that's a, a pilot, a photographer, and one of them is the reporter, generally the uh, photographer. So the pilot gets in about a half hour before the, the talent and does a pre-flight and sort of has a little uh, checklist of things to go over, including weight and balance, including possible destinations, what the manifest will be like, whether or not there'll be other people on board. Generally, it's a crew of only two. And then for the news stations, we're flying the AS350 or the, or the H21, uh, 125. And so they will typically show up, do their pre-flight, get ready to fly at 4 a.m. And then they will wait for direction from the television station. Generally, at about quarter of five, they will get launched to go look at the local freeways and look at how traffic is starting to stack up. And if there were any stories that had happened overnight, for instance, we get a tremendous amount of fires, uh, warehouse fires, things like that, that, that pop up overnight. So we'll generally send the helicopter over there, but they're being dispatched by the television station, even though none of them actually work for the TV station. So all of the employees in the Los Angeles market for my company are employees of my company and we put the station logos on the side and they get dispatched directly from the station, but their paychecks come from my company. And will I go with uh, full fuel? What, what sort of setup do you normally run? So it depends on the helicopter. It depends on what the setup, how heavy the camera is, 
generally, I'll take the KTLA helicopter here in Los Angeles. Generally, it's a crew of two. They can go out with a full bag of fuel, 143 gallons, 955 pounds, roughly. And they uh, have roughly a three-hour range from the time they take off to the time they land, depending on what kind of flying. Most of the flyings at sea level out here in California uh, or in Southern California. However, we do have brush fires where you'll see the helicopters that need to go up into the 12 to 15,000 feet range. And so for that, we have supplemental oxygen. All the pilots are trained. You never know whether you're going to go offshore. So we've got, we don't have floats, but we do keep, we do keep an offshore kit available in the helicopter for the pilots that are going to be flying. And of course, that's the unique part of this job is you don't know whether you're going to the desert or the ocean or the mountains or downtown. You just don't know where that next breaking news story is going to break out. So the pilots and the crew really work well together um, and make safety their priority. So a typical day will we'll start with a, with a traffic cruise, we call it where we're just flying around showing live shots of traffic in LA, which is a huge story here in Los Angeles because we've got thousands and thousands of miles of freeway that get clogged up every day. But, you know, in LA, you never know whether it's gonna be an earthquake, a brush fire. You know, we, we routinely have police chases. That, that seems to be something that resonates with people. So after that first hop, the, stage, the, the crew will come back, land, refuel, get another, you know, three hours of fuel on board, hopefully get a cup of coffee, something to drink, uh, something to eat. And then it is um, a response to a story that will, that will get the station will dispatch, the crew will run out, they will take off and they will go cover that story as long as they need to be there, knowing that their limitation is going to be the fuel and the, and the time on target. Okay, well, let's, if we get into some geeky details, I guess, now. So if we take one of the yeah. H125s, other than some of the mission role fit out you're just talking about. When we're talking, you know, radios, cameras, downlink equipment, can you run us through what the, the fear is on, on your machines? Sure. So typically we'll have uh, two VHF radios um, and then there will be UHF radios as well for station communications. We have a microwave transmit antenna that's um, mounted on the belly of the helicopter. And essentially it's a, two gig directional antenna that will point to a mountaintop. And it's reliable up to around 60 to 70 miles. Um, so there's several that, of those mountaintops. Do you have to point the helicopter in a, in a certain direction? So what happens is on board, there is a, a computer system that is made by the manufacturer of the antenna. And it will give the coordinates of those mountaintops. So the operator, the, the camera operator will select, he'll call into the station, find out which mountaintops are available for that microwave signal. Once they figure out what, which mountaintop they want to go to, they'll punch in. So in Los Angeles, one of the popular hilltops is called Mount Wilson. And it uh, transmits, uh, it'll receive a signal from the helicopter. It's a hilltop that sits at around 6,000 feet. And then it'll relay that information, that, that video and audio back to the television station. And then the television station will determine what gets transmitted or what gets recorded. So the helicopter will record on board, but that antenna is unique in that it will always point to the coordinates that are pre-programmed in. So if you select Mount Wilson, 
the camera will not only, or the, I'm sorry, the antenna will not only point to Mount Wilson, but it will also tilt as the, as the helicopter is making its turn. So it, so it's directional and it'll tilt as well. And that's how you get that, that live signal from the helicopter. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. didn't know that for sure. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the camera, then, uh, yeah. So it's not slaved to the camera, but, but we do have, uh, it's called a Churchill navigation system. And what that does is that's very unique in that you can type in an address or an intersection or a landmark. So let's say there is, a, 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 you know, God forbid there's a, a, a plane crash near LAX. You can, you can put in a coordinate or you can put in a landmark or a restaurant or say, you know, a, a Marina Del Rey is a popular marina here in Los Angeles. You can type that in. The uh, navigation system will put a pin on that location on the map that you bring up. And the camera will actually point to that location. So the pilot really just needs to look down, see where that pin is, and then match it up on an aviation chart to make sure that he's not violating any airspace or any, uh, uh, there are several, uh, temporary flight restrictions in Los Angeles from time to time. So once you get the navigation, the helicopter, literally the navigation is just to point it at the pin drop and fly to that location. And it'll tell you how far away you are. And you can do all kinds of cool overlay things. Like you can see what that location looks like based on the Google Maps or uh, any of the overlay maps that we, that we have preloaded into that system. Is it running on, a, on an iPad or that's a especially fit in the actual dashboard? No, so, so it, there, there are a couple components to it. We can run it off of an iPad, but we can also overlay it on the screen, the monitor that the, pilot, that the cameraman is looking through. So the pilot can select the, the camera that's mounted out front. And if the camera's pointed toward the story, he could just fly toward that real-time real image. Yeah, okay. And in terms of the camera, it's on a on a boom out the front, or it's it's physically mounted to the nose of the helicopter. How do you how do you secure so it? So we've we've been through every iteration of how to mount these cameras, and in the early days they were very heavy. So there was a need for ballast, there was a need for counterweight, there was a need to take less fuel, all kinds of calculations that needed to be run. Nowadays the cameras, and we're currently using a couple of different cameras. We're currently using the uh it's a company called gss uh, and it's gyro stabilized systems they purchased a company that was called cineflex before that before that it was clear forward-looking infrared all made gyro stabilized cameras now they come in at around 120 pounds which is all in including the mount and that mount is picking up some hard points from underneath the, the floor of the A-star, which is a cantilevered floor. But as you, as you get under that uh, floor, there are a couple of hard points. And so we've been able to take a pole mount, put it under, that, under the, the, the floor, under the belly, and it's very snug. And then as it gets out toward the nose, it curves up a little bit to a flat plate. And then that plate is what the camera is mounted to. So that camera will rotate 360 degrees. It'll point straight down. And, and you can almost, you know, from any altitude, 
you can get a, a beautifully clean shot, no matter which way the helicopter's pointed, as long as that helicopter, as long as you can uh, see what's below you. And so uh, remarkable cameras, they look like they're on tripod. The all-in weight is right around 120 pounds, which makes it essentially, you know, a very light passenger. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I was thinking if, if we go next and for people listening, what I'll do is I'll include a link for the LA, I think you call it a sectional chart because yeah, I guess the next thing to look at is, is the airspace that you guys operate in because it's going to be pretty crazy with some big airports there. Now, I'm looking along the coast just south of, of LAX, I think it is, and there's one set of text that says uh, 100 and then a line underneath it and then 50. So if I saw that on a map here locally, I would read that as maximum height 100 and minimum height 50. Is that the is that the gist of that corridor down the beach? Well, it depends on which one you're looking at. I'm, I'm trying to look at it as well. So normally, I don't know how it is in Australia, but but when you see the, uh, let's take the the one you sent me, right? Yep. Are you looking just south of, of LAX right Yeah, there look, by, there's a couple. Of, where, over the water, there's one that says, you know, 100 um, with a line underneath it and then uh, surface. So I'm assuming that's, you know, yeah. no higher than 100 and no less than, than surface. And there's one yeah, just so on the beach what, there, which is like 100 and then, then 50. So, so the way that you read those is that's 10,000 feet and 5,000 feet. Okay, sure. So between, so, so, so the one that says 20 and 100, it's 10,000 to 2,000. So that is the, that is the protected class Bravo airspace of the LAX approach. Gotcha. And so, so if you're going to be flying along, so let's take that example, the one that's offshore. And let's say we're flying along that that heavy blue line that says Palisades, yeah. um, right along the shoreline. So if, if you're flying, first of all, you'll see that there's a 30 mile arc around the city uh, of Los Angeles. It's a it's it's um, just sort of the big thin brown circle that goes around, and and essentially that just means that if you don't have a transponder, you cannot fly into that airspace. Okay. So you need a transponder to fly into that airspace. But, it, but let's take the example of flying along. So if I'm at 3,000 feet and I'm flying eastbound along the shoreline and I come up against that 2,000-foot level there, I'm going to want to either descend down to below 2,000 or I'm going to want to move into an area where if you go a little farther north, you can stay at 5,000 and you're staying out of the airspace. What makes it tricky and complicated as you as you move into – the greater Los Angeles area, you'll see there are several airports that are big and small that have a tendency to overlap. So yeah. in some cases, so I, our, one of our bases right now is, is up, uh, if you take a, a line straight north from LAX, which are the, the big runways right at the bottom of the map, and you go draw a straight line up, you'll see there's a tiny airport at the sort of top end of the map here a little bit, and it's called Whiteman Airport, just north of Burbank. Yep, I think I don't know if you can see that. So so Burbank is surface area to 4,800 feet for five miles. It's that five-mile arc. And then there's a little cutout just north of that, and that is where our home base, that is where our LA home base airport is. Gotcha. And so you see, the minute we depart, so between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m., it's a controlled airport. And the moment we depart, 
we're in, in addition to talking to our control tower between eight and eight, we also have Burbank, which is right there, and then Van Nuys over to the west a little bit. And Van Nuys Airport is the busiest general aviation airport in the world, it's meaning that there are there are private jets and helicopters and government helicopters and airplanes that are constantly coming in and out of that airport. So I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is that it looks in, extremely intimidating until you do it a few times. And then the controllers and the, and the pilots get along very well. So uh, typical, a typical flight would be to take off and immediately get handed off to Burbank. And Burbank has a couple of transition routes that are known to the controllers and the pilots. So you'll request a transition route. And then once you get south of Burbank, you now have some other airspace concerns depending on your altitude. You've got Santa Monica, LAX, and then to top it off, you've also got uh, football and baseball and sports stadiums that have restrictions as well. So it's, it's, just, it's just a real, you know, we talk about the pilots going into a flight with, as, you know, knowing as much as they can about that flight. And part of it is just looking at the airspace to see, you know, are there any presidential TFRs? Are there any VIP TFRs? That's temporary flight restrictions. Are there boarding temporary flight restrictions? And then not to forget that if you're being dispatched to a major breaking news story, there might be, you know, for instance, if there's a chemical explosion, there might be a temporary flight restriction for the safety of the people that are flying in and out of that area. So those are all things that a pilot that's flying this mission needs to think about prior to taking off on top of what's the weather forecast? What's the weather currently? What's the, you know, cause you could be flying from clear blue and 22 into an area that's got zero visibility and or on a typical, uh, you know, the TV station's job is just to get the pictures. So they're not thinking what's the safest thing for my pilot or my helicopter. They're saying, hey, there's just been this terrible thing that happened or this amazing thing that just happened. We need you to fly there. So it's really up to the professionalism of the pilot and the crew members to make the decision, is this a safe flight? And that's the real challenge for these, uh, for any pilot is, is, should I continue with this flight? So as managers, we try and make it as safe for them as possible and really give them a non-punitive way to report any issues that might pop up during the flight and the ability to tell the station, no, we can't do that, it's not safe. And not, the stations don't always take that and say, oh, okay, it's, it's not safe, great, stand down. They, they'll see that another station perhaps is covering that news story. And so it's important for us to keep that communication between the TV station and the pilot we want to keep that. We want to keep them as as separate as possible, so the pilot never feels pressure that it, hey, if I don't get to this story, I'm going to possibly lose my job. We really want to foster and and empower our pilots to make safe decisions about whether or not. As a matter of fact, sometimes we don't even want them to know what the story is. Much like an EMS pilot that uh, you know uh, is going out into the middle of the night, he doesn't want to know what if it's a three-year-old and this is that three-year-old's last chance or if it's somebody with a stubbed toe that shouldn't matter it should be safe or not to fly to that to that destination 
So you have ops crews talking to the stations then and then talking separately to the pilots? Is that how you sort of get that separation? So what we do is we, we encourage our crew members to uh, to have the pilot not listen. So in other words, eliminate. They've got the ability to listen to those to those radio frequencies if they want to, but we encourage them not to and to just concentrate on the business of flying. Yeah, okay. Of, of communicating with control towers. So we so we shift that other position to whoever the crew member is that's shooting camera and or reporting. They're the ones that will communicate with the stations. And then they will say to the pilot, can we go blank? The pilot will then say, we'll give it a shot. Yes, no, but 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 that's the way we do it. In terms of, you know, minimum experience for people you're putting on in the pilot role, where does that kind of sit roughly? And, and how do you, do you have like a, a, a mentoring process? And what does that look like for someone who's stepping into it for the first time to the point where you're happy to yeah, so turn them loose? That's a good, that's a good question. As far as uh, how does somebody go about getting this job? You know, people that are interested in flying, a lot of times they'll use, and, and this is universal, I'm sure, stepping stones, right? You get your pilot's license, you get your commercial, you get a CFI. Uh, or you go and you fly tours, or you go and you fly, you know, in the Grand Canyon, Hawaii. That's the way that things happen out here in the United States. And so what we try and do is identify pilots that we're interested in early on from some of the flight schools, some of the other tour operators. And uh, we will go to those pilots and we'll see if they're interested in taking on a job in a non-flying capacity with our, so for instance, as a crew member on a helicopter or maybe crew member on our uh, power line utility division, fuel truck driver, things like that, with the idea that, that we will help their flying career as well at the same time, so help build time for them. And, and in many instances, we'll get people that apply that are coming out of different areas. For us, we like to see a minimum of 2,000 hours when you're flying in this particular role here in, in, in Los Angeles, news specific. We will talk to pilots that have less time if we think that we can put them into our training program. And then that training program, depending on, on uh, what kind of flying we're doing, will mean mentoring by being a third crew member on board one of those news helicopters. So, so we will generally put you on board, we'll pay you, but we'll generally put you on board to watch how one of our seasoned news pilots does it. And that process is anywhere from between 30 and 60 days where, where you'll fly with a crew member, one of our instructor pilots. And then generally they'll go for a, uh, a ride with our Czech airman. He'll put you through some paces, some emergency procedures. And then once we feel like you're comfortable, We'll then put you in the pilot of command seat and switch the role and have the training pilot sit there as an observer from the left seat. Okay. Yep. Is it a stage? Do you have like a like a nursery area where you'll send that pilot to, to cover some of the stories because it's sort of just an easier airspace or easier geography before you send them into different sectors? Or do you sort you know, of... You know, it's, it's, re it's really... A, uh, there's, there's a couple things. We, we watch the pilot, the way that they manipulate the controls, of course, and the decisions that they make from a safety standpoint. But really, it's a complicated thing to, to really put down. It's, it's 
it's a matter of how well does a pilot maneuver through what is a very rapidly changing landscape when it comes to airspace, the, the amount of volume of traffic uh, when it comes. So I'll give you an example. I told you that, that pursuits in Los Angeles, the police trying to apprehend a suspect that's driving a car in an erratic manner, that's a common occurrence out here. It happens to be one of the most, I would say, uh, you know, it, distracting things that you can do because you really get locked into what the, what the driver of the car is doing. And so that's really the, one of the, the meters that we use is how well does the pilot concentrate on flying the helicopter versus getting into whatever the subject is that they're covering. And to me, that's the key is, is if a pilot can do this job, concentrate on making sure that the cameraman is getting a, a good an opportunity as getting to that new scene, and at the same time having the discipline to know that you don't need to do anything that's going to be dangerous in order to get that shot. So that's the balance. And when it comes to Los Angeles, you've got about 50 news helicopters, I'm sorry, 50 law enforcement and firefighting aircraft that are based within our coverage area. So when you think about the scale of that, you're flying into, so the example of a pursuit is you're flying into a very busy airspace where you're talking to several controllers. A lot of the pursuits happen to take place right in that spot where you were describing earlier that is uh, where it says surface to 10,000 feet, just east of LAX. And because of the makeup of the city of LA, for some reason that, tends to be a very busy place. But as you can see, it's right on final for LAX. So you've got aircraft that are coming down, 747s, Airbuses, um, commuter aircraft, and it's just a constant stream. And so you've got the controllers at LAX that are doing what they can to get you into that airspace. Normally, it compresses you below 900 feet. So if you can imagine that, below 900 feet with up to seven to 10 helicopters all operating within a mile of each other. So it just becomes extremely, uh, you, you really, really, really have to concentrate on keeping your head on a swivel, having a situational awareness of where the other helicopters are, and having the discipline to say, no, this is too busy for me. I'm going to hold out. I'm going to fly out, you know, somewhere else. Even at, at the risk of having the TV station say, what do you mean? Every other station was covering it. You've got to have the discipline as a pilot to know if it's too dangerous, if you don't feel safe, you need to pull out of that area and then reassess. And if you can get back in, great. If not, there's no news story that is worth endangering the lives of anybody on the ground or the crew in the air. For sure. It's related, I guess, but it's a little bit off track. In the movies, uh, I guess it's LA because they're filming that area, but you have the car chase where they, they get into, I think you guys have these big concrete uh, viaducts where they you know dip into a, sure. massive drains. And then the, the, yeah. the car will outrun the helicopter. I was going to say, how realistic is that? Like, do you get places where you just can't get through the airspace, or is that a bit of uh, a bit of storytelling license there? No, you know, and that's part of being a professional pilot. Is it doesn't matter what the the answer to your question is. Is every time I think I've seen everything, something else happens that shocks me. The human condition is just that way. Every every time you think you've seen it, we have seen cars go into the into these big concrete rivers. We've seen cars you know, jump off bridges. We've seen 
we've seen it all. We've seen carjackings live. We've seen people, um, you know, trying to purposely ram police vehicles. So the answer is that that all of those things that you see in the movies, there's it, it's there's probably a kernel of truth in in what you're looking at. But uh, the idea that you can outrun the helicopter in a city like L.A. is very very difficult. We have seen it where where people will drive into parking garages or drive you know directly into the middle of LAX or but uh, the answer is that every time I've seen, I've seen it all I have not and therefore it just makes that discipline of knowing the airspace and also knowing what your rights are as a news pilot I mean that's something that that's very important is that that really no law enforcement agency wants a news helicopter there. That's for sure. There, there's, there's nobody that, that is saying, hey, come on over and take a look at what's going on over here. You know, most of the time they just want to do their job without being observed by the news media. So oftentimes you'll get a control tower that will say, hey, the uh, police has, uh, they, they've restricted the airspace. And so you say, well, wait a minute. We're an accredited member of the news media. We're not interfering with what they're doing. Is this a temporary flight restriction? And the answer nine out of 10 times is no, it's not a temporary flight restriction. Well, then we're gonna safely operate within this airspace. And sometimes that it seems like a little pushy, but that's our job as a news pilot. We have to know when, it, when it's appropriate for us to push back against air traffic. And if it's, and if it's not a matter of safety, then we will push back to get to get in to cover that news story. You talked a little bit earlier, Larry, about the fact that you know you'll have machines done up in the in the station, colours and logos. In Australia, and people will prove me wrong, but the, the bits and pieces I know, we've moved from each station having their own helicopter and, and their own pilots on on station staff to an external arrangement, a bit like what you're doing, but especially here in Brisbane, there's, there's just one helicopter and the stations have realized they, they can save a heap of money by just sharing the, the footage uh, from, from the one helicopter. So, yeah, essentially there'd be like one news helicopter will go get the footage and then give all the stations access to it. Is that, that's going oh, sounds it's like it's completely different to, to your setup. It's interesting. You know, we've, we've tried that many times in, in Los Angeles. You know, we call it the pool helicopter and it'll work out for a parade or a state funeral or something that's a pre-planned event. But because the stations, you know, it's hard to imagine this because most people turn on the TV and they see the same stories on every station. But most of the stations want to keep that independent ability to take their own helicopter and go out and provide their own spin on what they're doing. And when I say spin, I don't mean, you know, they're not making things up, but if there are three different stories going on in Los Angeles or three significant events, let's say there's a, a, a Donald Trump protest in downtown, there's a, a, a brush fire that's you know just outside the city that's consuming homes, and there is flood-related storm damage in another area. The stations want the ability to go and cover what they want to cover at the time and have the flexibility of being independent. So we've tried the pool concept out here. Right now, the appetite from the stations is they want their own helicopter. Now, as less people tune in to watch TV, we'll see what the economic reality of that is moving forward. But I can tell you that 
that right now the stations feel like their independent ability to go out and cover the news in an independent way, the way they want to do it is more important than saving money by, by using a pool system because generally, and especially when it comes to live TV hits, it's very difficult to coordinate a live TV hit when there are five stations sharing one feed. Have you looked at, or do you do any direct broadcast yourself? Like again, you know, given that there is those, those social media platforms, you could almost start your own TV station, I think. I don't know, maybe this, don't want to talk about that sort of stuff, but uh, yeah, do, do you generate anything yourself and, and, and publish it or you, you purely just provide it for the customers? No, we purely provide it for the customers right now. And part of that is just because of the expense of having a dedicated news helicopter. Yes. In our model, you know, early on, we, we started to distribute some of our own video, but it was almost as though we were competing with our own, with our own clients because they were paying us to go out and, and shoot that video. So if, so if we were to launch our own helicopter using sort of, you know, the infrastructure of the stations that we're working for, it was almost double dipping in a way, and we didn't want to we didn't want to compete with our own customers. Yeah, no, that's what I thought you'd, you'd say. Yeah, but yeah, it's one of those things as as it goes forward. Yeah, all those dynamics are changing. Where the the infrastructure that big stations have is almost being bypassed in some areas by that social media um, sort of platform. But uh, well, I think I think we're there. I I, I think we're there. It's, it's much like you know, sort of the recording business a little bit. Like you know. People haven't stopped listening to music. There just aren't these huge record deals anymore. You know what I mean? And and so the way that technology sort of transformed the way we listen to music, I think it's transforming the way that we consume news as well. And you're absolutely right, and you're dead on with your question, which is, does a model that we are currently using, is it sustainable for the future? And as a helicopter company, which is really what we are, you know, we're not an entertainment company. We're not a broadcast company. We're, we're really at the heart of it, a helicopter company. But how do we stay ahead of it without sort of biting the hand that feeds us and looking out into the future about the way that, that information is consumed? And, and we are looking at that. We've experimented with several things. Uh, one of them is we put a 360 camera in the helicopter with the, the idea that if you're watching something on TV and you want to see what's going on inside the helicopter, that you'd be able to go to a link and, and you'd not only be able to see the camera inside the helicopter, you'd be able to see different angles from outside the helicopter as well. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, Larry, again, bring us back on track in terms of, of piloting and, and keeping it there. Flying yeah. over such a you know built-up area, it seems like LA is just a, a massive... You know, urban sprawl. What are you thinking about and, and what are you training your pilots to, to think about in terms of heights, speeds, where they're going to go in emergencies? Well, I think, you know, for for us, you know, it's not, it's not super complicated uh, as far as the actual flying of the helicopter. In other words, there's, there's, you know, the camera has minimal drag. You can feel it when it's turning. You can feel it, um, it you know, just like anything else. If you, if you put a sail out or to put any, you know, externally mounted piece of equipment, you can feel it as it's turning. But really what we're, you know, our main, uh, our main uh, sort of message to the pilots is always going to be the, the safe operation of the helicopter 
while at the same time knowing sort of the future or what possibilities. So we really want to keep our pilots focused on less distraction, more concentration on what the mission is at hand, as much information as they can get from their crew members. So on a typical day, you'd take off and you would be flying, let's say, an ordinary, you know, I say ordinary, there, there's really no ordinary. We've had, unfortunately, we've had pilots that have had to make real-time decisions. We had, uh, many years back, we had an A-star that had an engine failure on takeoff. Pilot was at 700 feet, full fuel, max gross weight, low speed, you know, sort of the nightmare scenario for, for any pilot. And as he was taking off, he had an engine failure that was caused by a governor failure. And the pilot chose to to try and make it back to the runway environment. Unfortunately, there was a set of wires that was right there where he needed to flare. So he had to extend the flare, lost a little bit of rotor speed, and as he was coming down, made contact with the runway, the tail boom snapped off the helicopter. As the helicopter started to roll forward, the camera, believe it or not, that was mounted on the lower left side of the nose of the helicopter prevented the helicopter from rolling over, effectively saving the crew. I, this happened early in the morning. I was home, got a call from my, I could see my cell phone was ringing. Then I saw my home phone was ringing. Never a good sign at that early in the morning. I picked up the phone. On one end, it was the pilot. On one end, it was the photographer. They said, hey, we want you to know we're okay. And, and at that point, I was relieved we're okay. <laughs> and nobody else got hurt. The helicopter's destroyed, but we're okay. And I was perfectly okay with that message. You know, I immediately went down to the airport, wanted to see what, you know, I wanted to make sure the crew was, was good. They were, they wanted to go back to work. I said, absolutely not. You know, you guys <laughs> got to go get checked out. And, uh, but, uh, you know, you were asking me earlier about pilots. And unfortunately, I think in the United States, a lot of these news media flying jobs are stepping stones to other jobs. In other words, pilots are trying to build time. And so they come in and they're looking for a regular gig where they can build time and then move on to, to other things, which is fine. We have been fortunate in that I've gotten a lot of pilots over the years that are career pilots. They come in, they take the mission very seriously. They know the city. They know the airspace, they know the helicopter. And so I've been fortunate in that I've had several pilots that have been with my company, you know, for 10 plus, sometimes 15 plus years that are flying the same mission. They seem to be happy with it. I think we pay a little more than, than usual, but that's because we like the stability of having, of having pilots that are looking to make this a career and not just a stepping stone. Yeah, and I was just interested in the, uh, I guess, the thought process because a lot of places we're flying, there's, there's fields and paddocks and things to, to go to if needed. But rarely, if I go over the CBD, it's sort of thinking, all right, where am I going to go? And yeah, especially just given the size and density of LA, there'd be a lot more of that time where you're not necessarily going to have a, a good option. It's yeah, my, and especially when you when you talk about you talk about the urban setting of LA, you know, you could go miles and miles. You, you could, you know, you, you could see the lights for as, as long as to the horizon. So, so it's, it's a very, while it's spread out, there are tens of millions of people that live in our viewing area. And, and, and of course, we've got all the traffic and the urban sprawl. So that's, 
you know, we talked, we didn't really talk about it. I, you, I know that you had mentioned it in an email, but we operate on a 24 seven clock. In other words, we're operational with a crew from 4 a.m. till midnight with both of our contracts here in LA with, with all the contracts here in LA. And so a lot of that flight time is at night, which makes those emergency procedures even more important because of course, if you're if you're in that unfortunate position where you've got to do an auto rotation at night, you lose a ton of depth perception and you can't see wires and obstacles and things like that. So it's it's very important that when you are flying, you know, in all my years of flying, I just did a, a, a KTLA shift. We had a pilot call in sick on Friday. So I went in and I've got 19,000 hours of, of flying time um, and 15,000 are in that H125. But I still do the same training that our newest pilot does. We do annual training. We do full down auto rotations. But when I'm flying over a new story, from the time I take off, from the time I land, I am always looking, especially when I get to a new scene, I, I try and pick out a few places where I would go if I had a problem. And that's just, you know, all pilots do that. But it's more important for the guys and gals that have a lot of experience to really remind themselves that, you know, you can't get complacent when it comes to doing this job. You, you have to really go out, trust your machine, trust your maintenance, but also you really do have to have that thought in the back of your mind. Am I gonna be able to make that parking lot? Am I gonna be able to make that roadway? Are there obstructions? So I generally pick two to three places. And if I can, I like to orbit the story just so that I have a little bit of airspeed if, if I need it. Most of the time, the stations would prefer that we hover in one spot. That typically takes place at about 2,000 feet above the ground, 1,500 to 2,000 feet above the ground. And, you know, you can hover there for two and a half hours. But if you're going to be sitting in one spot in a hover for two and a half hours, you better have a good place to land in case you need it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and, look, I feel like I'm only scratching the, the surface here. There's a bunch of other questions, but unfortunately, I've got a uh, time constraint at my end uh, today. Yeah. So yeah, Larry. Look, thank you so much. It's just, it's just always fascinating to get a, a little bit of a look into the different jobs that are out there. Uh, we're all flying, you know, helicopters doing something similar, but then it branches out into all these different avenues and, and different locations. So yeah, look, that's, that's been amazing. And as I said, I'm, I'm sure that you got some amazing stories from the things you've seen from the air there. But I guess just to, to finish off, that, that was a really good spot there to finish off. But is there I don't know, like a top one or two things that you've got thousands of hours there. What what were some of the things you've you've learned in the last you know five thousand hours that you kind of wish you had known in, in the in the first five? I, I think the the biggest takeaway, and, and we've touched on it several times, is no matter what your mission is, whether you're setting power poles, fighting fire, EMS, tours, charter, you know, it doesn't matter what what phase of flight you're in having a pilot's license is is great and it's an amazing accomplishment but you really got to know your mission and you really got to you really got to concentrate on that mission in other words i own a power line utility helicopter company i would never dream to go do the things that my pilots are doing they are so specialized they're so well trained on what they do and so i would say really i think that for me as a young, if I could go back and talk to a 21-year-old Larry Welk, I would say concentrate on the mission. 
stay focused on the mission and not so much being a well-rounded pilot. It's great to be a well-rounded pilot and that's all gravy. And, and, and I never stop learning. I'm, I'm actually right now trying to go and get my glider rating. But the, the, the important part is that when it comes to my mission, focus, be safe, be good at it, and never stop learning. That's, that, that really is my takeaway from, and, and trust me, I have seen some of the craziest things. I've done things that I'm not proud of as a young pilot doing news because I just didn't know better. And so it's concentration, learn from your mistakes, focus on your mission. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Larry. It's, uh, yeah, been really appreciated and um, looking forward to sharing this with, with everyone else. I appreciate your time. Thank you. You've been listening to Larry Welk from Welk Aviation in Los Angeles. With really just a, a very shallow dig into some of the stories that Larry must have from being in that news role for such a, a long time. Right, places you can go to find out more, uh, there is welkaviation.com, it's spelled W-E-L-K. You can look up Larry and Welk Aviation on Facebook and Instagram. And super easy, if you look at episode 94 on rotarywingshow.com, there are several photos of Larry there. You can see what he looks like to go along with the voice. You can see that the camera fit out, what it looks like on the news choppers and some of Welk Aviation's fleet. A big thanks to Larry for giving up his time to have a chat with me. Tim Tucker from Robinson Helicopter Company has started his own blog this year during the COVID shutdowns. I've only just found it in the last few weeks. His essays there are great reading for your professional development. And not just for, for Robbie pilots, it is really useful though to have some of the, the stories and behind the scenes information about certifications and how they came about for the different aircraft types and what goes into it. I really highly recommend that you check it out. It's timtuckershelicopterworld.com, timtuckershelicopterworld.com. Or it might just be easier to Google Tim Tucker helicopter blog to get there. If you get something from it, be sure to leave him a message at the bottom of the website and let him know. A couple of stats here at the end of the year, if you're interested about that side of things. We are just about to hit almost 300,000 episode downloads in total. In terms of the most downloaded episodes in top place is the Chicken Hawk episode with Robert Mason. And then second and third are the two episodes we did with Matt Barker, which includes the, the chicken bone story. At the moment, it looks like the podcast has been downloaded in 201 countries or territories around the world. I didn't know there was actually that many. So as listeners, you lot definitely get around to some interesting places. It looks like there was one person listening in Antarctica. So that's a huge, a big g'day and uh, send me a photo. In fact, wherever you're listening from, send me a photo. I'd love to see what you're flying or what the, the view from your flight line looks like. But today it's 31 degrees centigrade or 88 Fahrenheit here in Brisbane. I know some of you out there must be looking at a helicopter at the moment with snow on it. And uh, yeah, send me a photo and I can uh, have some remote air conditioning just by looking at your uh, cold photos. You can get me at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. Want to help me out with the show and keeping all the IT side of things running? You can find the show on patreon.com and become a supporter there. Or if you're on the website, look at rotarywingshow.com slash support.
that support is really appreciated, especially just at the moment while I'm in between jobs and looking for the next challenge. Thank you to the following support crew on patreon.com. Heath, Gareth, Peter, Rendell, Chris, Brent, AJ, Tony, Jason, Michael, Hal, John, Kevin, Michael, Jeff, Mark, Shannon, Jake, Eric, Kirillin, Bill, Mike, Benjamin, Nikolai, and Alita. You lot are fantastic. Thank you. It is almost Christmas 2020 as I push publish on this episode. For many people, I think it's going to be a year that we are more than happy to write off and see the back of. Here's for hoping a 2021 sees an improvement in the COVID-19 situation. And definitely my thoughts go out to those affected either through family impact or house hit parts of the industry, especially tourism and those who have to have had to navigate uh, border crossings and quarantine as part of touring work. There are lots of people in the helicopter industry working through the holiday period on shift work or touring. I hope you get a break to catch up with the family later in January. Thank you for joining me on the journey and hanging out with me on these podcasts this last year. I'm looking forward to being back with more helicopter industry interviews in the new year and a chance to keep learning and to, to keep improving. Catch you then.